Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. There's been a recent movement in Mexico among um, female scholars, academics. Um, they call themselves the Diana Moran Scholars, and they excavate uh, female writers who they feel have been left out of the canon of Mexican literature. And um, Amparo Davila was one of those that they've um, been writing about. Uh, they dedicate books to women like her and uh, Guadalupe Dueña, Cines Arredondo. Uh, another thing that happened with Amparo is that uh, she was made a character in uh, Cristina Rivera Garza's novel, um, La Cresta de Ilion, the Ilion Crest. Oh, yeah. Yes, and that's really put her in the name in the in the mouths of a lot of academics on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border, and that's how um, we heard about her. And um, there's also been a large resurgence among very young audiences of. A lot of young women, young men, um, who are interested in gothic literature, although she doesn't subscribe to any one genre. However, um, she does have a large audience among those groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, we, we interviewed her at some point, and she talked about um, about how she, she, she went to a reading, and there were so many young people lined up that, like, her hand, her, her hand almost fell off at the end, you know, from signing so many books. And she was obviously very pleased about this. You know, yeah. this, it was just a couple of years ago. So. Um, yeah, and so she was she was born in 1928 in a, in a little town called uh, Pinos in Zacatecas, which was an old mining town. And she describes having this very like atmospheric, foggy sort of creepy uh, childhood filled with portents of death. Um, and we're gonna we're actually gonna read a little something uh, shortly, which speaks of this in her own words, rather than trying to to trying to speak for her. Um, but so, so, so she grew up in Zacatecas, in, in the provinces of Mexico, and decided at some point to move to Mexico City and be a writer. And it's interesting, her father did not believe that, didn't believe in her because she was a girl. You know, he was like, that's not something girls and women can do. Yeah, good luck. No, you shouldn't do that. Um, and so when she actually made it as a writer, she dedicated two of her books to him, you know. Um, and she began as a poet. She began as a poet. In the 1950s, she published, I think, three books of poetry. Uh, but really, she made her name for herself with her short stories, which she began publishing at the end of uh, the 1950s. And her first book, Tiempo Destrozado, which means more or less time shattered or shattered time, um, was published in 1959 with Fondo de Cultura Económica, which is the which is the Mexican state publishing house that they actually published that a huge amount of of what is of like the most important Mexican literature of the past century or two, mm -hmm. um, and also it, it was interesting. She was the secretary of the great Mexican writer Alfonso Reyes, who is see I see some I see some people nodding. He is in in Mexican literature. He's one of the the greats among the greats. He's he's a giant. He's this kind of like Renaissance man of letters, you know, who translated the Iliad from Greek and, and wrote on classics, wrote on Mexican history, wrote 
poetry and, and narrative, he did a little bit of everything, and he's, he's just this towering figure. She was his secretary for a while in, uh, in Mexico City. Mm. He met her when she was a young writer in high school, I believe, um, entering into literary competitions in uh, San Luis Potosi. And she quoted a line from uh, Saint-Exupéry, the French writer, and he was really captivated by her and invited her to come to Mexico City. So her story is one of a provincial, uh, rural to urban migration, which is um, such a common story in Mexico, and also um, one of moving from um, a rural provincial background to into the avant-garde. So her stories reflect that movement as well. And um, Alfonso Reyes really took her under his wing and ended up encouraging her to publish um, prose in some of the big journals in Mexico City. Um, he connected her with a circle that was called the Capilla Alfonsina. And um, and then he kind of let her, let her go and she flew from there to um, publish four books and um, we're really excited uh, to be able to be her translators and to bring her into English and um, to the knowledge of English language readers. She's actually been translated into many other international languages, um, but this is the first time she gets her own collection uh, in English. So, Yeah, it, 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 it actually surprised us that when we started this project, she hadn't been translated more into English. There had been, there'd been maybe like three or four stories out there one in an anthology, another in another anthology that had never like made much of a splash because she was buried among 30 other writers, you know. Um, yeah, although yeah. in the 1960s she was written about in the New York Times as by a, a major <laughs> Hispanist professor, uh, and he said that she was better than Carlos Fuentes. But um, that comment yeah. just sunk <laughs> like a, yeah. a stone in a pond. And, um, but she has been anthologized in some um, like Spanish language textbooks, uh, a book called Three Messages and a Warning about the Mexican fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, her story, The House Guests, is the most widely anthologized. Um, but we found a lot of other gems that we wanted to put out there. And, and, and also just to, just to talk for, the, for those who haven't read the book, but also who have read the book, what she's about, she gets, she gets pegged often as a writer of horror, of terror, of the fantastic. She's definitely a writer of very dark stories, often very gothic stories. They're not always fantastic. I mean, there's a, there was a, there's a prize in Mexico for fantastic writing called the Premio Amparo Davila, the Amparo Davila Prize, which now doesn't exist anymore. They, 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 they stopped doing it. But things like that meant that she was associated with fantastic literature, but maybe fewer than half of her stories actually definitely involve something supernatural. Um, and what's What's interesting is that in her own autobiographical writings, which there's almost nothing of, but <laughs> there's, there's an essay at least that she wrote, she says that her three main influences, um, well, she's, she's all about very classic literature in a way, you know? And she said her three main influences were Franz Kafka, which makes sense to me quite a bit. And she told us, well, of course, you know, Mexico is, is Kafka-esque, you know? <laughs> and, and that's... And that's part of its encanto. That's the, that's that, that's that's part of its why why it's why it's enchanting. Part of its charm. Um, a second person she mentioned is Albert Camus. And a third, which is the one that always that that surprises me, but she's mentioned as an influence, is D. H. Lawrence. So, mm -hmm. but 
yeah, her her really her stories are not typical horror stories. They're they're psychological stories, maybe. Mm-hmm. And she said that um, you know she's she's discussed that her literary output has been limited um, in terms of number of stories that she's been able to publish, and it's such a common story with women um, writers and artists that her domestic obligations which is really a main com- uh, theme of her fiction, um, kept her from, from producing as much as she may have otherwise. Yeah, and, and, and speaking of that, she, it, what's interesting is she resolutely calls herself, I am a universal writer. I'm a writer of universal literature. I don't write gender literature. I'm not a, you know, I don't, I don't write literature that has to do with one current, that has to do with one school. Uh, Alfonso Reyes told me this, and, and it was great advice, never join any ism or group or anything like that. Um, that was always important to her. But it's, it's true that themes of women's domesticity and women's fears and, 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 and the social pressures on women and, and the way Mexican society treats women are, are huge and very important in her work. And, and, and they're in many of her stories, and they're extremely well portrayed. You know, and very, very, like, uh, well, yes, extremely well portrayed. And and at the same time, what's really interesting is she's she's quite good also at writing from the point of view of men and dealing with masculinity in stories like, um, like one that we translated as the funeral, which is El Entierro in in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and I guess my last comment before we read some of her autobiography is just that what really captivated me about her stories when I first read them and kept me in bed all morning, you know, reading her entire collected works, which is uh, quite a bit larger, are these currents of invisible violence that she mm. depicts, um, in especially in the home, and, um, and how she pulls those out, and they're v- quite a taboo topic uh, in Mexico, uh, they conflict with the traditional role of the woman who's supposed to accept and embrace um, anything that's inflicted upon her. Uh, and yeah, with that, we want to read some of her um, autobiographical essay to um, give you a few of her own words about herself, and then we'll read uh, one of our favorite stories. And this and this essay is one that has been published in Spanish in, in two slightly different versions. This is our English translation that hasn't been published yet. It is it's so as of as of now it's an unofficial translation. And if you want to refer to the to the work, you'll have to find it in Spanish and look it up. Um, the same paragraph by paragraph. Mm-hmm. All right. And she titles it "Notes Toward an Autobiographical Essay." Pinos, the town where I was born is the village of Agustin Yanez's Women in Mourning. And it is also Luvina, where from morning to night, from the day you're born until the day you die, all you hear is the wind. Perched on a mountaintop and always surrounded by clouds, from afar it looks almost unreal, with its high steeples, its sharply sloping streets, and its long, narrow alleys. Pinos is an old and chilly mining town in Zacatecas. Its past is gold and silver, and its present is an uncertain one of abandoned mines. I was born in the big house of the village, and through the window panes I watched life pass by. That is to say, death, 
because life had long since come to a halt in that town. Death passed in a daily caravan. There were no cemeteries in many of the nearby ranches, so the people came to Pinos to bury their dead. I would watch the corpses arrive sprawled in the bed of a cart, draped over the back of a mule, or sometimes lying in a rough-hewn box. Behind the window panes, there weren't many hopes of life for me either, but portents of death abounded. My brother Luis Angel had died, and I was a lonely, sickly girl. Next to our home stood my paternal grandfather's house, which had two rooms in it that I've never forgotten. A very large living room with wicker furniture, ornamental jars, gold mirrors, vases full of porcelain flowers, paintings, and a life-size sculpture of the Virgin with large blue eyes made of glass, who seemed about to suddenly climb down from her altar. And the room at the back with a coffin in the middle of it and four fresh candles. This was the coffin that for years my grandfather kept ready for his death. On the corner by my house was the prostitute's alley, and this was the only place in town where there were traces of life and joy, but death roamed there too. Fairly often, the miners killed each other, and the women were stabbed by the men. At night, the town's appearance became more dramatic. There was no electricity, and the streets and houses were lit by the weak glow of oil and gas lamps. The chill intensified, and the wind blew more forcefully. The men bundled up in thick horongos and pulled their wide-brimmed sombreros down over their ears, while the women muffled themselves completely, leaving only their eyes uncovered. Beset by the cold, they disappeared down the dark streets like a procession of black crows. The wind leaked in through the cracks around the doors and windows, freezing us to the bone. I was perpetually cold. Neither the fireplace in my room nor my dogs and cats could warm me up. Oftentimes during the day, I cried with the cold, and at night with cold and fear. A woman dressed in white, holding a lighted candle, pale and eyeless, searched for something throughout the long night. The doors and windows and furniture creaked. Shapes and shadows moved past. There came voices, whispers, moans, and the sound of a man with a wooden leg thumping dully by, amid the howling wind, the phonograph music, and the laughter of the prostitutes in the alley. So the night would go by. Many nights of my childhood went by this way. My first passion was alchemy, perhaps because I was born in a mining town. When it wasn't too cold and I wasn't ill, I would escape to the mountain with my dogs. I would pick all kinds of flowers and poisonous herbs and collect pieces of flint and stones that struck me as unusual. Then I would spend days on end shut inside an empty storeroom we had, filling small bottles with flower petals and grinding up ivy and nettle leaves. I immersed the flints and other stones in water tinted with different colors. I was completely convinced that one day, when I least expected it, I would produce incredible perfumes, poisons, metals, and precious stones. The bottles full of macerating leaves and flower petals would explode a few days later, and the storeroom would fill with pestilent odors. The pieces of flint grew moldy and covered in slime. But I wasn't discouraged by these failures, and I would go on filling bottle after bottle. And to this day, I still prepare tinctures and ointments. So that, that's, that's kind of a taste of, of where she came from in her own words, the, the atmospheres and experiences that, that, that went into her, in, into her work, into her stories and poems. Yes. So now we're thinking of moving on. We're, we're going to read one of the stories from the, from the collection. Um, 
and then we'll open it up to questions and answers. And the story from the, we, we thought we'd start by reading a tiny bit in Spanish. Not the entire story, but uh, what, a paragraph, a page, how much do we want to start with? Start with a paragraph in Spanish, and then we'll read the story fully in English. And and this is a story in which she plays with using, uh, with writing sections of it in italics and writing sections in which are printed in Roman. And so we're going to play with reading it in more or less the same way. Final de una lucha. Estaba comprando. Well, first I should ask how many people here speak Spanish. Okay, oh this won't get wasted. Okay. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Estaba comprando el periódico de la tarde cuando se vio pasar acompañado de una rubia. Se quedó inmóvil, perplejo. Era él mismo, no cabía duda. Ni gemelo, ni parecido. Era él quien había pasado. Llevaba el traje de Casimir, inglés, y la corbata listada que le había regalado su mujer en Navidad. Aquí tiene su vuelto, decía la vendedora. Recibió las monedas y las guardó en el bolsillo del saco casi sin darse cuenta. El hombre y la rubia iban ya por la esquina. Echó a andar tras ellos apresuradamente. Tenía que hablarles, saber quién era el otro y dónde vivía. Necesitaba averiguar cuál de los dos era el verdadero. Si él, Durán... Era el auténtico dueño del cuerpo y el que había pasado su sombra animada, o si el otro era el real y él su sola sombra. End of a struggle. He was buying the evening paper when he saw himself walk by with a blonde woman. He froze, perplexed. The man was himself, no doubt about it. Not a twin or a lookalike. It was he who had passed by wearing the English cashmere suit and striped tie his wife had given him for Christmas. Here's your change, the girl at the kiosk was saying. He took the coins and distractedly stowed them in the pocket of his suit jacket. The man and the blonde were already nearing the corner. He hastened after them. He needed to talk to them, to know who this other man was and where he lived. He needed to find out which was the real one, whether he, Duran, was the true owner of his body and the man who had walked by, his living shadow, or if the other man was real and Duran only his shadow. The couple walked arm in arm and seemed to be happy. Duran couldn't catch up with them. At this hour, the streets were packed with people, and it was hard to get through the crowd. Turning a corner, he didn't see them anywhere. Thinking he had lost them, he felt that anguish he knew so well, a mix of fear and anxiety. He stood looking all around him, unsure of what to do or where to go. He realized that it was he who was lost, not them. But then he caught sight of them stepping onto a streetcar. He made it aboard just in time, with his mouth dry, almost out of breath. He tried to spot them within the crush of humanity. They're toward the middle of the car, near the exit, trapped like him, unable to move. He hadn't been able to get a good look at the woman. When they'd walked by in the street, she'd seemed beautiful. A beautiful blonde, well-dressed, on his arm. He was anxious for them to get off the train so he could approach them. He knew he couldn't bear the situation for much longer. He saw them move toward the exit and step down. He tried to follow them, but by the time he made it off the streetcar, they'd disappeared again. For hours, he scoured the nearby streets for any trace of them, but in vain. He went into different shops and bars, peered into the windows of the houses, lingered on the street corners. Nothing. He couldn't find them. Defeated, 
Rattled, he took the streetcar back. This unlucky encounter had increased his usual feeling of insecurity to the point that he no longer knew if he were a man or a shadow. He went into a bar, not the one where he normally drank with friends, but a different one where no one would know him. He didn't want to talk to anyone. He needed to be alone to find himself. He had several drinks, but he couldn't forget the encounter. His wife was waiting for him to come home for dinner, as always. He didn't need a bite. The anxious, empty feeling had reached his stomach. That night, he couldn't bring himself to touch his wife as she lay down by his side, nor on the nights that followed. He couldn't deceive her. He was filled with remorse, with disgust for himself. Perhaps at this very moment, he was possessing the beautiful blonde woman. Ever since that afternoon, when he had seen himself walk by with the blonde, Duran had not been doing well. He made frequent mistakes at his job in the bank. He was constantly nervous, irritable. He spent hardly any time at home. He felt, he felt guilty, unworthy of Flora. He couldn't stop thinking about that encounter. For several days in a row, he had gone to the corner where he'd seen them and spent entire hours waiting for them to show up again. He needed to know the truth, to find out whether he was flesh and blood or just a shadow. One day they reappeared. He was dressed in that old brown suit that had been his longtime companion over the years. He recognized it instantly, having worn it so many times. It brought back a flood of memories all at once. He walked close behind them. It was his own body, no doubt about it. The same veiled smile, the graying hair, his step that wore down the heel of his right shoe, the pockets always bulging with things, the newspaper tucked beneath his arm. It was him. He followed them onto the streetcar. He caught a whiff of her perfume. He recognized it, Sortilège by Le Galion, that perfume Lilia always wore, and that he'd once bought for her as a gift after going to such lengths. Lilia had reproached him for never giving her presents. He'd loved her for years, back when he was a poor student dying of hunger and love for her. She scorned him because he couldn't give her the things she liked. She loved luxury, expensive places, gifts. She went out with several men, but with him almost never. He had arrived very timidly at the store, counting the money to see if it was enough. Sortilege is a lovely fragrance, said the young lady behind the counter. I'm sure your girlfriend will like it. Lilia wasn't at home when he went to bring her the perfume. He spent hours waiting for her. When he gave it to her, Lilia received the gift without enthusiasm, not even bothering to open it. He felt immensely disillusioned. That perfume was all that he could give her and more, and she didn't care. Lilia was beautiful and cold. She commanded. He couldn't please her. They got off the streetcar. Duran followed them closely. He had resolved not to approach them in the street. They walked for several blocks. Finally, they went into a gray house. They lived there, surely, at number 279. He lived there with Lilia. He couldn't go on like this. He had to talk to them, to know everything, to put an end to this double life. He didn't want to keep living with his wife and with Lilia at the same time. He loved Flora in a tranquil, serene way. He loved Lilia desperately, agonizingly, always humiliated by her. He had them both. He caressed them. He enjoyed them at the same time. And only one of them really had him. The other was living with a shadow. He rang the doorbell. He rang again. How patient he had been, thinking that in the long run, this could win her over. He used to wait for Lilia at the door of her house, happy just to see her, to be allowed to occasionally walk with her wherever she was going. Then he would go back to the boarding house at peace. He had seen her. He had spoken to her. He rang the bell again. Just then he heard Lilia scream. She screamed desperately as if someone were beating her. And it was he himself who was beating her, cruelly and savagely. 
but he'd never had the courage to do it, though he'd often wanted to. Lilia, beautiful in a blue satin dress, looked at him coldly as she said, I'm going to the theater with my friend. I can't see you. He was carrying the diploma he'd been awarded that day, wanting her to be the first to see it, thinking she would congratulate him for graduating with distinction. He'd told his schoolmates that Lilia would be his date to the graduation ball. Wait a minute, Lilia. I just wanted to ask you. A car had pulled up in front of the house, and Lilia wasn't listening to a word he was saying. He grasped her arm, trying to keep her there just long enough to invite her to the dance. She shook off his hand and ran toward the waiting vehicle. He saw her sit very close to the man who had picked her up, saw her kiss him, heard her laughter. He felt all the blood rush to his head, and for the first time he felt the desire to take her in his arms and finish her off, to tear her to pieces. That was the first time he drank until he blacked out. Again he rang the bell. No one answered. He kept hearing Lilia scream. He began to pound on the door. He couldn't let her die at his own hands. He needed to save her. All I want for you is to leave me alone. I don't ever want to see you again, Lilia had said that night, the last time he'd seen her. He had been waiting for her so that he could say goodbye. He couldn't go on living in the same place as her, suffering her slights and humiliations. Day after day, he had to leave, distance himself from her forever. Lilia had slammed the car door furiously as she got out. A man jumped after her and, catching up with her, began to beat her. Duran had run her aid when Lilia's friend drove off in his automobile. She was crying. He had embraced her tenderly, protecting her. Then she brusquely pulled away from him and said she didn't want to see him anymore. Everything inside him rebelled. He regretted saving her from that beating. He regretted showing her the tenderness he felt. If the other man had killed her, it would have been his salvation. The next day, he fled from that city. He had to escape from Lilia and free himself forever from that love that belittled and humiliated him. It hadn't been easy to forget her. He saw her in every woman. He saw her on streetcars, at the movies, in cafes. Sometimes he would follow a woman for a long time until discovering she wasn't Lilia. He heard her voice, her laughter. He remembered her turns of phrase, her style of dressing, her walk, her warm, supple physique, which he'd held in his arms so few times, and the scent of her body mixed with sortilege. His poverty pained him, and he often despaired, thinking that if he'd only been rich, Lilia would have loved him. For so many years, he had relived that memory. One day, Flora appeared. He'd let himself be swept along without enthusiasm. He thought the only way to be done with Lilia was to have another woman at his side. He married without passion. Flora was good, affectionate, understanding. She respected his reserve, his other world. Sometimes he woke up at night sensing that it was Lilia sleeping next to him. He would touch Flora's body and something inside him would tear. One day Lilia disappeared, he had forgotten her. He grew used to Flora and began to love her. Years went by. He could barely hear Lilia's screams. They were very weak, muted, as if he forced the door open and went inside. The house was completely dark. The fight was long and muffled, terrible. Several times falling, he touched Lilia's inert body. She died before he could get there. He felt her blood, warm still, sticky. Her hair got tangled in his hands. He continued that dark struggle. He had to make it to the end, keep going until only Duran remained or the other one. It was close to midnight when Duran emerged from the gray house. 
He staggered out, wounded. He looked around with suspicion, like a man afraid of being found and arrested. So that's a taste of <laughs> <laughs> what's in this book. Um, I guess we thought we'd open it up to questions from questions from you guys. If there's anything you want to know about Amparo Davila or about this book. Um, do you want to start? Or you want me to start? Well, uh, we went to her house uh, to interview her. Um, the the publishing house arranges the rights, and um, I think actually well, Matt knows a little bit more. He's yeah, actually, we Light. we before we met her, we'd published one story of hers, yeah. um, a translation of a story, her story Moises y Gaspar, which is Moses and Gaspar. And, and when that was published, we sent a letter to her saying like how much we loved her work and we really wanted to meet her. And we had to send it through her publisher. And, and her daughter got, got in touch with us. And so as we were working on this larger project, we were in touch with her first uh, kind of more at, at a distance. She doesn't use email. She's, she's 90 going on 91. And so we have much more constant contact with her daughter than, than with her. But she loved the idea and Unfortunately, it wasn't a situation where we could work hand in hand with her on the translation and consult with her. Um, yeah, she's just she's she's tired. Um, she's she's not very involved with the translation, but we always, you know, have given her opportunities to consult, and um, we asked if she wanted to send some words. Um, when we, as we do these readings, and, and she wasn't Nothing, able to. Yeah, we haven't to, heard anything yet, yeah. Um, but um, it was lovely to meet with her in her house, and um, <coughs> she was very excited. And um, she she showed us some other translations that have been done, and it just seemed really happy that people are reading her work, and um, and rightfully proud of what she's done. And, and, and she now has copies of the book in English, but we haven't spoken to her since she, since she got them. So we'll see what, what, what she thinks and how proud she is and if her, and if her English is good enough to, to, to criticize our, <laughs> our choices of words. Yeah. 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 Um, she was friends with Julio Cortazar. Um, they had a literary correspondence, and um, he called some of her stories extraordinary. Um, that was a very gratifying friendship. Yeah, and she actually, went, when we interviewed her, she said, and it's because a friend of mine sent my first book to him. I was really mad at her. How, how, that's like, que presumido, or, you know, how, like, que confianzuda, <laughs> like, like, how do you send a, a book of a just-published author who's a nobody to a great, like, Julio Cortázar? And then he wrote back and said he loved it. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, they, mm -hmm. and they became friends, and I think they, they visited, or she visited him in Paris. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if her knowing Paul Bowles, and I've never heard her speak of him, but I, 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 I see what you're saying in terms of this kind of the spareness and also the, the occasional brutality, you know? Um, and but she was also very much in like Mexican literary circles, 
So rather than, uh, I mean, she and her daughter talk about being in circles with like Guadalupe Dueñas, with Juan Jose Arreola. Um, she was married to the painter Pedro Coronel, also from Zacatecas, but only for a few years. And they, they were in, in similar artistic circles. And she knew Elena Poniatowska, who interviewed her for a newspaper uh, very admiringly. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, she was part of a circle of, um, she also um, had a residency at the um, Casa de Escritores in Mexico City. And, 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 and we know she's been to the US. She has, we, we haven't translated this, but one of the later stories she published, she, after 1977, she only published five, she's only published five stories so far since then. Um, and they were in the 2000s. But one of them is, it's more of a cronica or more of like a, a personal narrative about visiting New York and, and booking a room in the Chelsea Hotel during, uh, during when it, on Halloween night. I mean, like, where am I? <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's very funny because she's a very, like, proper, polite woman, actually. <laughs> she really is, yeah. yeah. So, so, so she's, been, she's been to the U.S. She's been invited to the U.S. too, yeah. She's been compared with Edgar Allan Poe, but um, she had not read his work before she wrote her stories. She said she was terrified by his stories when she read them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she got sick. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, we originally wanted to we originally wanted to pub to translate all of her stories and still do. <laughs> and when we started talking, we we started with with one or two of the ones we thought would catch people's eyes or ears or whatever most. Uh, one of which was Moses and Gaspar. Um, but when we spoke with New Directions, New, New Directions got in touch with us saying, "Are there more?" You know, after after they read that story in the Paris Review. And we began talking with New Directions about um, creating a selection. And with they actually wanted to, to have a selection that spanned her her career or her three main um, her her three main books of stories. And so we simply began translating ones that we absolutely love and that mm -hmm. we thought had something that would really catch readers. But it, the process was partly in, um, done in tandem with, with New Directions. They also said, actually, we like this one less, and we love these two. Um, yeah. And it, it, uh, that's kind of how it, how it worked out. Mm -hmm. we, we just began translating the ones that spoke to us in the moment, and we took turns um, doing drafts. So if I did the first draft of Moses and Gaspar, and then Matt did the first draft, I believe he did the first draft of, of De Una Lucha, the one we read tonight. Oh, maybe, okay. Um, and a couple ones that we loved um, did not make it into the book, and that's why we're hoping to do another collection. Um, I spoke at UCLA yesterday uh, to a class that had read Detrás de la Reja, mm -hmm. and, and that one is not in this book. So there's, there's more that we'd like to do. Yeah. And speaking of UCLA, I have three of my students here, so thanks so much for coming. Four, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, Maddie. I think the the main challenge, and it's interesting because she's not challenging the way some other writers are, where you just don't even know how to like how to how to bring the grammar of this sentence into English, you know. 
Um, and she doesn't like translating James Joyce into Spanish or something like that. She's very clear and very clean. But what's most difficult is that she's very precise in her language. And you have to be careful to read and listen carefully and be just as precise, especially when it comes to ambiguity. Like key words or uh, key characters who aren't fully described or key words that aren't used. Um, things like that, and, and, and you have to find a way, you have to one, be sensitive to that and notice it so that, so, so that you know you're translating it, and two, you have to figure out a way to do it in English. What was the question? What's the most difficult thing in translating her, in her, yeah. her translating her spare style? Yeah, she uses a lot of ambiguity, and um, she doesn't always describe the characters. She's got these kind of um, demon-like, animal-like, or humanoid um, characters and uh, that are kind of part of the mystery or the nightmarish quality of some of the stories. And so we had special challenges um, conveying that ambiguity um, there, there's one example I always use is um, she says at one point there's a story in Moses and Gaspar. There's two little demon-like creatures that hunt their their owner, and kind of like dogs, but we, but or maybe cats or maybe something else. They're undefined beings. Undefined, <laughs> they're terrible. They really wreck <coughs> they wreck his life, and um, at one point one of them um, he never understands his neighbors are so upset. Um, one day he comes home to try to understand what's going on and um, Moses is standing on top of, or no, Moses is, está parado sobre el refrigerador, la she stufa. writes. Uh, yeah, and um, la estufa. And so we didn't know how to translate that. We didn't want to say he's standing on, on top of the refrigerator because uh, Parado does not indicate that there's any legs or any feet on this creature. So we just said he was on top of the refrigerator. So to, to carry over that um, mm -hmm. or magical ambiguity. Yeah, or, or, or another example without saying too much about the story, but those who read the story, Oscar. Um, one thing we had to do is largely, there's a character named Carlos who's always identified as her brother or the brother. Oscar. Is not that 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 term or language is not used to describe him, but that's important in the story. So go read it, and you'll and 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 and, and you'll understand why. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. 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 Yeah, from her three main books, Tiempo Destrozado. Música concreta en árboles petrificados. Mm -hmm. The title of the house guest. It's the title of um, El Huesped, um, one of her best known stories. And since we couldn't name the book um, Música concreta or Tiempo destrozado, árboles petrificados, um, I think. You and I perhaps suggested it as a possible title, and then mm -hmm. the publisher yeah. just ran with it. Just sometimes, just the the name of one of the stories, and then uh, and other stories. And, and we thought it was sort of yeah, yeah. mysterious sounding, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like a multi a, a multivalent word. But what's interesting is that she never had a collection called El Huesped. 
except recently in Mexico, Fondo de Cultura Económica just put out also a selection of like her stories that are more kind of horror style and fantastic, um, spanning her career, and it's called El Huespede otro, Otros Relatos Siniestros and Other mm. Sinister Stories. So now actually <laughs> she has a collection in Spanish called El Huespede, but, but it's, a different, it, it's different from this one. Can, 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 can we okay. say if they've had uh, expressed interest? Well, we're going to be in New York with them, and we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> That's our next stop. We are, we are definitely on, on, on board with, with translating more. We think, we think all of her stories should be translated into English, so we're on that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Um, that's that. That is one of the few stories in which she me she directly mentions Mexican politics, right? Like 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 the student protests that are going on in the in in well, that are always going on, and at that point are going on in the early '60s. It's true she she doesn't mention politics specifically. She mentions a lot of things you can think of as 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 political or 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 social. I'm thinking of like Tina Reyes, which actually, without has, to me, an immense amount of indirect social commentary, right? Um, but it's true, I mean, you're, you're, you're right. I would say, I, I can't speak to why she doesn't deal with it directly. You know, we would have to ask her. Um, but she doesn't deal very directly with Mexican politics. And often it, it's true, like violence as well is left, so to speak, off screen or off, or, or, or off the page and, and suggested very clearly rather than described explicitly. Mm -hmm. And um, she also doesn't call herself a feminist, uh, even though she brings up themes about the lives of women and about violence as women experience and about excessive housework and absent husbands and all sorts of, uh, she has a miscarriage abuse. in one, um, which was a, an unusual topic to write about in the 60s in Mexico. Um, but she doesn't call herself a feminist. So it may have to do with her milieu. She's um, like upper middle class. Mm -hmm. um, so it's also not a Mexico that you often read portrayed in the United States, which is so often thinking about the campesino, campesina, ranchera image. Um, yet there's, there's also a, a cosmopolitan upper class Mexico that has its own flavor and personality and it's not always, she doesn't always directly engage with, with politics, mm -hmm. at least not on the surface. It's something you have to read below the surface to find. Mm -hmm. But that story, um, she does talk about student conflicts, protests, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, repressive uh, government, and uh, yeah, and also and also kind of sexuality and male female relationships and things like that are also like uh, 
get like really coming to the surface in that story too. Yeah, and you can read in the, between the lines about authoritarianism, patriarchy. Um, we've been asked this a couple times. Yeah, we don't we we don't know how far back her family goes. We haven't we haven't explored her genealogy or 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 asked her to. So there's there there's a lot we don't know. I think her her family were. I mean, they had they had a what seems to be a pretty nice, decent house in 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 Pinos. Um, but I'm not sure what her father did for for a living. There's a lot more work for scholars to do as yeah. well on her. I would like, um, there are more and more conferences now um, with panels dedicated to her work. Um, I'd love to see a good biography come out um, in English or in Spanish. Yeah, and there's yeah. more work for us to do as we, we're hoping to interview her again, mm -hmm. um, yeah. depending on her availability. I think we did see some vocabulary and stylistic choices um, that run through, like, currents through her stories. And I think we tried to – well, what do you think? Well, I think, I think actually, the, there's, there's a real balance that has to be achieved between exactly the two things you're, you're describing. One, treating each story as its own story, and two, looking at her work as a whole – because her stories change and feel, you know, e each story really is its own is its own world, and they change and feel. Some of them are funnier, some of them are more horrifying, you know. And I would say I I feel a I notice a distinct difference in style and flavor, kind of from her first collection to her second collection to her third collection, and I and I feel like that's important um, to to maintain and and to say, well, what is she trying to do in this story? What kind of mood is she trying? What, what, wh who's her narrator and how does this narrator speak? You know, what kind of language? But at the same time, there are definitely things that, that are common to her, to her style, that, that, that the more you read her, the more you kind of understand her ways of using language or her ways of leaving certain things unspoken. Mm -hmm. And you definitely have to like apply that, that, that knowledge as you, as, as you translate further stories. Mm -hmm. I think we actually debated in a heated manner this very <laughs> question that I said, well, we translated it this way in this other story, so we should definitely do that again in this one. And he said, well, not necessarily. But certainly if there's a word, she has a few words, like Borges often has the word umbral, threshold. Um, and she uses the word torbellino sometimes. Torbellino. Yeah, yeah, which um, we translated as whirlwind. And I think, right? Or I... I I, I'm not sure if she sometimes uses remolino, and ah, some remolino. Uh, but yeah, they're they're kind of related words. But yeah, they're mm -hmm. an image of someone being caught up in a whirlwind definitely yeah. does show up. Yeah. So I think we tried to maintain a consistent vocabulary where the exact same word was used. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. We hope we hope to hear from people as they read the translation and as they read it side by side. I'm hoping. Um, 
that a colleague of mine is said he's going to review it for the LA Review of Books, and I'm really looking forward to hearing some criticism, the <laughs> translation. There's never any one answer. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 almost impossible to replicate both the the sense and the sound at the same time all the time. Sometimes you get lucky and you can absolutely do it. Um, uh, other times you decide the sense of the word is is more important. But um, but definitely, like I I don't I think that we thought less or, or when when it comes to things like sound, I think we probably thought most in terms of rhythm. You know, like rhythm. like like rhythm of sentences and 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 the variations within them. You know, rather than replicating exact sounds of words. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, if she was using alliteration for specific purposes, then we would certainly um, also use alliteration. Or if the sentences were percussive and choppy, then we would um, do that. Or um, and sometimes we would debate, you know, and we would uh, go through many word choices in order to find the one that we felt both, you know, fit the rhythm and also um, the, and the sound and also the, the meaning. So sometimes we debated and one of us thought one, I think, yeah, one of us thought one of those things was more important than the other one. And then we had to come up with more and more choices until we found the one that satisfied both of us and, and that we felt conveyed her intention. Is that all? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.